This is Proverbs 7. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And to insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, Today I fulfilled my vows, and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that reading, Emily. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily today, actually. My son, keep my words and store up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and you will live. These are the words of the writer of Proverbs for us this morning. Um, And this this morning um, is our last sort of lecture from the book of Proverbs. So we've had 10 lectures so far. Interestingly enough, most of them about avoiding adultery, but that's sort of been the way the book has been built in these first nine chapters. And most people, when they think of the book of Proverbs, they think of the short sayings, the short wisdom sayings that make up the latter half of the book. And so, actually, here's the image from the um, 
Bible project that sort of breaks up the book. Uh, it's very small, but just to say that one through nine is these introduction to Proverbs with these 10 lectures. And this is the last of these 10 lectures from the father to the son. Um, and then 10 through 29, that second section, is all these sort of um, sayings that sort of are to relate in our world. 31, and those are broken up into sections too, but they are just a short sort of by um, uh, short wisdom sayings. And then uh, you have the short proverbs of sort of King Arger, and then you end with uh, the proverbs of, of Lemuel, which contains the Proverbs 31 woman, um, if you're familiar with that text. And so today's sermon is the last one sort of based on one of these lectures from a father to a son. Next week is perhaps what is one of the most familiar portions of the book of Proverbs. Lady Wisdom speaks again, and that's chapter 8, her lecture. And then the week after that, um, or sorry, David's doing next week, which I'm excited for. Uh, Proverbs 8, after a short interlude, um, David's going to be talking about listening from the book of Proverbs. And then uh, Proverbs 9 sort of presents Lady Folly, or the adulterous woman who we saw today, and Lady Wisdom, again, as a choice between two paths. As you're, most of you are aware, this is, uh, we, we sort of are doing wisdom literature for the next couple of summers. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and then Song of Songs which we're looking forward to, right? Everybody's excited to be one of the readers for the Song of Songs series. Um, uh, that, that is sort of the path we're on for the next couple of summers. Um, but we spent so much time in this chapters one through nine because they sort of build the frame for the wisdom sayings that come from the rest of the book. We'll have two Sundays, maybe three Sundays on sort of the wisdom sayings. I'll pick one or two and sort of go as deep as I can on them. But they're things that are meant to be chewed on and cycled over and over again. They're meant to be things that live in your life so that you can hear them over and over and over again. But as I mentioned, this is our last Sunday with the Father and sort of our last sort of explicit warning about adultery. Now, one of the things we've defined wisdom as, as we've been doing this series, is the art of skilled living. And at the start of each sermon series, I've been trying to sort of break out, what does it mean to be practicing wisdom in the modern world? What does it mean to be a part of this community? There's this one, uh, this other definition, as we've used other ones, I like this one from the Bible Project. Wisdom is the accumulative insight of God's people throughout generations. Wisdom is the accumulative insight of God's people throughout generations. And it's this way in which these are not guarantees or permanent rules. We've talked about how Proverbs lives in a very solid universe, that, that these things are expected to be true more often than not. Um, when we get to the book of Job, we're going to find out what happens when they're not true, when we expect them not to be. The Bible doesn't just have one genre for this, but other genres for discerning wisdom. But this cumulative insight throughout uh, generations, I think is one of the challenges that I've been trying to phrase for the modern world. This opening of each of these lectures, which varies from my son, my daughter, um, from the father, keep my words and start my commandments with you. Sometimes it says, keep the words and commandments of your mother, keep the words and commandments of your father. Um, it's been all sorts of, this is today's sort of intro to it, is one of the things that I think we throw off the most. The insights of previous generations are the things we are often likely to ignore. And so the accumulative insight that Israel's distilled in the book of Proverbs is another one of those, like, um, uh, there's a great, the Simpsons, are, I guess, are going to be in the sermon twice, perhaps, but there's one where old man yells at cloud, um, 
Like he just, the cloud came over his house and he just yelled at the cloud. That, that we have this persona among old people. Um, it's an, a, another sort of perhaps damaging way that this shows up in the world is, okay, Karen, um, which I don't think uh, exhibits uh, that people older than us might have something good to say. Um, that we have this way of sort of dismissing everybody who's older. And yet what Proverbs assumes is that we move into sort of this generational aspect of receiving these things. They're not within us. They're not things we found on our own. They're things that need to be instructed to us to be heard and to be brought into our lives and hearts. And, and the first thing I would say is if the father is not prop, uh, practicing these things, the, the father or mother who's giving these lectures throughout the book of Proverbs, if it's just propaganda. Like it's just me saying things that I think might be good for you, but I don't practice them myself. So there's a bit of integrity needed in this, of being able to say, let's, let's do these things together. It was interesting. I was listening to a podcast on the, the book I'm going to talk about next shortly as an introduction. But uh, they had referenced, you know, if you tell your kids not to use certain words, but at times you use them yourselves, you're kind of just propagandizing things out there. I know this is confessional as a pastor, but that, that made me feel a little bad. I was like, oh, uh, time to guard my tongue a little bit better around my children. Because if you're just not following the advice you're passing on from generation to generation, it begins to lose its power. And perhaps that's why we struggle with this so much in our world today. But it's about this crafting of sort of a person, of, of being able to hear these previous generations' wisdom, of being able to take those into ourselves. And I think one of the things that I think we'll find in this late modern world is that's actually a path towards freedom. The need to always be inventing ourselves, to be chasing what's new, to making everything right again, actually creates its own sort of slavery over and over again. But being able to wake up and to hear wisdom from the past and to have seen in somebody who's practiced it um, some goodness, then we can begin to walk a path without having to plow it ourselves. So the podcast I was listening to I just referenced was about um, C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. The, the most famous portion we'll start with is we make men, and in and, and C.S. Lewis's phrase this could be, we make humans without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the gildings be fruitful. The modern world in this way, we laugh at the virtues of the past. Purity, temperance, uh, prudence, all these things. And then we have a world where these things go astray. We act shocked and surprised. The person being interviewed in the podcast, um, particularly, and this was not about Proverbs, but talked about sexuality in particular, is that we, we have this, these characters, let's pick on James Bond, for instance, a different woman every movie. The Bond girl always changes. There's no um, commitment to it, and there's almost a joke about him seducing them. Daniel Craig, the recent actor, said he thought Bond was a chauvinist jerk and never wanted to play him again. I think he's done two movies since then, which tells you how the almighty dollar speaks anyways. Um, but uh, we have this way of doing that, and then we're shocked when we find out that there is disregard among our bodies and sexuality. We cast off all the guardrails that say this is how we should live, and then when we go off the highway, 
we act surprised, is sort of what Lewis is pointing out here. But earlier in the essay, he makes this point. St. Augustine defines virtue as ordo amoros, the originate condition of the affections, in which every object is accorded that kind of degree of love which is appropriate to it. This is Augustine's concept that we live with disordered loves, and the, the goal isn't to squash our loves, but to properly order our loves. And this is, I think, a fundamental change when you think about your own human self. Is my goal to rid myself of all my desires, whether they be for um, books or interest or love or even sexuality, or is it to properly order it? to practice as it in the place that God has given us, um, to practice sports as leisure, not as the thing that colonizes my whole life, um, to practice sex in the confines of marriage between a husband and wife, which God has ordained for it, to practice um, the leisurely consumption of other things, that that is sort of, we order our loves more than we stamp them out. Aristotle says that the aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought to do. It's about developing an appetite in Aristotle, um, knowing what tastes good and knowing what tastes bad. And we talked about this in the previous week, if you've watched any Food Inc. or any of the food documentaries of the past year, is a lot of the stuff that we eat that's junk food is just designed to like hit all those sensors, and we lack the discernment and the appetites to say that this perhaps will make me unhealthy. This will destroy me in some ways. Plato before him had said the same, that little human animal will not at first have the right responses. It must be trained to feel pleasure, liking, disgust, and hated at those things which are really, uh, things which really are uh, pleasant, likable, disgusting, and hateful. What Lewis is saying here, which I think captures why these, so many of these lectures in this early part are in the spirit of a parent speaking to a child, is that we need to be trained in the art of skillful living. We need to be trained in the art of being a human. And so much of at least what I've learned is that that is actually um, restrictive and therefore bad. Um, but I think what Proverbs is calling us back to is that idea that we can live into these things trusting and knowing that they're good because they're the distilled wisdom of ages. They're the distilled time that we have. So that's our intro for today on sort of wisdom and such. But, but today's um, lecture on idolatry, I've been trying to make the argument over and over again that if we think about it as just idolatry, we're going to end up short. Um, now, my parents are here today. Um, I don't know how many Easter's this was the movie we watched, but it's from the Ten Commandments, and that is the golden calf. Um, and this is 1950s uh, revelry um, as captured on film. Um, nobody thinks this is funny. I find this image so interesting because when you read the image of what's happening with the golden calf, it sounds much worse than what's captured here. It looks like People just like, act crazy, we'll film it. That'll be what we mean. Um, but this is the, from the Ten Commandments film, which we watched often growing up. I have a memory of it in the Moses, let my people go. Um, or Pharaoh, let my people go. Gosh, maybe I don't know it as well as I thought. Um, the, uh, is that idolatry in the Old Testament sense is akin, or uh, adultery is akin to idolatry. What I've been trying to say is, is that as these lectures deal with adultery, their actual point is idolatry. 
And not just idolatry, but the ways in which we're pulled from the past we are supposed to be on. This clearly shows up with the young man who's uncommitted today in the lecture. He has no idea where he's going or what he's doing, and he is pulled off of that path into something else rather than being committed. Um, and Deuteronomy, partially because of, of, we just did it last summer, but partially it's showing up in commentaries too, is such a core background text for understanding the book of Proverbs. Because first off, that's a book that warns about idolatry so much, but it's also a book that makes Israel God's son and almost performs a marriage covenant with them. And so when we hear the book of Proverbs in this way about what does it mean to go astray from faithfulness, it would be filled out better if we were pulling it alongside the book of Deuteronomy. This is the way in which we are pulled astray. And what I want to say about idolatry, and we talked about this more uh, in the last couple of summers, is that Luther has this way of saying that our heart is a perpetual idol maker. We just keep making idols all the time. And he goes on to say that, you know, we think idols are harmless, but any idol worth its salt demands human sacrifice. That is, we find other idols and other things in the world, they come to the sacrifice of other things. Now, part of what happened for me this week uh, is I had a friend visiting from Seattle who I hadn't seen in probably about four or five years. And one of the things I've been trying to propose is that our actual current political movement, and this is not a right or a left thing, but an obsessive, compulsive thing we have with it, is a new form of idolatry. And I've said in one or two lectures that there are actually thinkers, uh, going back to the 1950s and before, who proposed that sexuality was actually too weak of a new god for our unhinged age, and that we would eventually come back to just um, politics, that we would, without God in the picture um, and free sexuality, we would just come back to the uh, politicization of everything. And so this thing, friend, I hadn't seen in six years um, we were out playing Frisbee, and from the time he got there and we started playing Frisbee to the time he left, they just wanted to quiz Kelly and I on the gamut of every political perspective. Every question, every idea, everything that's been in the news, which, if you think about it, almost trivializes the whole thing. I mean, if you had one thing you really cared about the moment, um, and you could pick whatever it was, and you just wanted to say, hey, this is where my passion is. My passion is in racial equality. Can we talk about that for a minute? We've been friends for 10 years. But it was just a, it felt like a quiz through the whole thing. No discernment and energy from one to the next thing. And it just kept going. There was no, Gary, have you read any good fiction this past year? Friend, have you enjoyed the Seattle Seahawks or not enjoyed the Seattle Seahawks in the past year or season? And what I think we're finding in this current moment, and again, it doesn't, when I say political, I mean the whole thing. We're finding this way in which we can't even converse about normal human relations. And I think that this is where idolatry breaks into our modern world. And I said that what Luther said is it demands human sacrifice. I don't know who will get fed up with this in the end, my friend or myself, but at some point it's going to be like, I'm glad you're coming through the area, but I don't think we need to sit outside and talk for four hours. A severing of relationship. And, and this is, you know, you might say this is a friend who you've known for years but don't see very often, but this exists in people's actual families. This exists in people's coworkers. I was at the park uh, last winter talking to a, co or a teacher, 
And she was telling me about how she had to completely sever off a friend because of the, what he happened to punch on a ballot in November. We had liked each other, but because he had made this decision, I had to completely... And when I told her, I said, you know, can you think of other options? Um, she almost started to tear up because other options sound like a way out. And I don't... I mean, I've probably met this woman two or three times in Glenwood, and she started to tear up that maybe human sacrifice wasn't the best way to solve this problem. We have idols in other ways, too, not to just pick on the political spectrum. I've, I've talked about sports. Um, the notion of, of sexuality and pornography in our world creates a different idol that, that runs rampant, too. Um, and we have all these idols that sort of come into our way. And so what the father in this last lecture is crafting for him, how he's witnessed this happen. And so we're going to walk through sort of how this happens in the lecture that makes up book seven. And then I'm going to have a short insight at the end of it. So I'm going to quickly work through what happens in book seven. And the, and the insight at the end I want to take from, from the opening. So we're not going to do verses one through five. Because I think uh, verses one through five, a phrase I've used is fear of the Lord practices that if we are going to maintain on the path of wisdom in life, we are going to need fear of the Lord practices. And I hyphened that, like Eugene Peterson uh, doesn't do in the message, but does do in one of his books, to say that this isn't just uh, fear and Lord put together, but it's a whole sort of sentence of what is the fear of the Lord. It's a beyond um, just looking up fear and Lord. Uh, the joke is, uh, I don't remember where I got it from, is like looking up butter and fly, trying to get the definition of butterfly. Um, you know, you don't look up fear and Lord and go, this is the right way, but you have to look at the full narrative construct with it. But I think one through five at the start are the ways at which we might avoid this path, but we'll end there. So the father begins this, this advice to his son. At the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed the young man, a youth who had no sense. In other translations, this person is called the uncommitted. They're, they're, they're not able to sort of walk a certain path. They have no plan. They're unable to project sort of a future for where they should be. The second Simpsons joke um, I didn't, that was supposed to be in the sermon uh, was there's a moment in which Homer Simpson is uh, drinking a, a large tub of mayonnaise combined with vodka, I think. And Marge says, are you sure... You should be doing that, and, future, uh, and Homer responds, that's a problem for future Homer. I'd sure hate to be that guy. Um, that he's unable to project out himself that future Homer is Homer. The uncommitted youth, I think the reason why I told that, that funny instance from The Simpsons, the uncommitted youth is the person who's unable to project out the path they walk on leads to a certain future. The way they're wandering through town in this opening here suggests aimlessness. He has no goal to where he wants to be going. He has no place where he'd like to be. He doesn't know any of that. And so for him to say, you know, walking through this part of town where this type of thing happens, does that a good idea? Well, that's a problem for the future me, but it's not a problem for me today. Um, he, he lacks this sort of way of thinking about moving through the world. He has no sense. 
He was going down the street near the corner, walking along in the, di- the direction of her house. This is the aimless he had, as he doesn't know that this is going to be where this ends up. Part of the, the pr- proclamation, again at the beginning, is to, to seek these things and you'll live. In Proverbs, in the New Testament, in other writings around Scripture, there's this notion is that you can walk a path to life and you can walk a path to death, and there is no in-between. You're either walking in the direction of wisdom and faithfulness and fidelity and moving towards this thing, or you're walking towards the path of death. And as Emily read, that's exactly where this portion of the Scripture ends up. And he's doing this at night as the day was fading. Um, it says, then, uh, then, a woman, uh, then out came a woman to meet him dressed like a prostitute and crafty with intent. Uh, this is Lady Folly, who we've met before in Scripture, and she too is also an idolatress. But as we find here in this, an adulteress, uh, she too... Uh, She's married, but she has this disregard for both her marriage, but also for the people she consumes along the way. And there's there's a question, it came up in a couple times in the commentary that I haven't quite handled yet, is that is this uh, portion of scripture sexist or um, uh, uh, patriarchal or this, that, and the other? And I think that there's two sort of reasons why I would argue that it's not. One is, next is coming Lady Wisdom. Next is the wisdom that's called, or before that even in 1 through 5, there's the wisdom that's called sister. There's actually two different options for the women that are preserved. There are two different options for the men that are preserved in this text. It's that you can go to folly or you can go to wisdom. Women in this, in Proverbs, are actually profound both in Lecture 8 and in Proverbs 31 as sort of wisdom incarnate in some ways. And so within the text, there's a way in which you can say that this is not entirely negative. The second is is it had to be portrayed in some sort of romantic relationship way. And because of the nature of the ancient world, it makes more sense that it be portrayed this way than the other way, Um, particularly with the way in which folly is instructed here, that we move down the path, we walk into these ways. It's words that trip us up. Um, Whereas in the ancient world, if you had personified men who want to do rough and rowdy things at night, it would not be a a path of seduction, let's say. Um, And so this is where I think it helps us to hear it as a path of seduction, because we walk these ways without entirely knowing what we're doing often. Um, It's something that he has pulled further and further into, that she comes out dressed like a prostitute. She comes out and, and loathes him, and she took of hold and kissed him, and with a brazen uh, face, she said, and she sort of captured this man. And, and one of the ways I think the, this woman, the adulterous woman, is, is captured in Scripture, it reminds me of the, the devil prowls around like a lion from the New Testament as well. And so when we read these stories that have Proverbs exists in a different universe than all the redemptive sort of history. We've talked about that. But what we see here is that this is sort of, as a composite of the things that pull us astray, she is something that sort of um, pursues and consumes in this way. And it's the waywardness, it's the uncommittedness that brings this young man to that spot. It's, it, it's his um, own heir that has brought him here. She then um, portrays being religious in the 
seduction part. Today I have filled my vows, and I have food for my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I have covered my bed with colorful linens from Egypt. I have preferred my bed with mirror, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let us enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money, and he will not be home till the full moon. This portion, the, the religious aspect at the start of it, seems to suggest this. She says, come, I have meat for the community. If she's Jewish, the sacrifice she's referring to here is one in which when the sacrifice is committed, you take all of the meat and it all has to be consumed that day. And so in classic good Israelite fashion, this would be a feast you enjoy with other people. Instead, this is a feast that's used for seduction. And going back to that opening, it's, it's also part of this training of appetites. What's the harm there could be meat there? And I hope that, that as I've been doing this, as you think through your own patterns of sort of deceit and human sinfulness. When you're not on a path, when you're uncommitted yourself, Come, let's have an affair and that'll be it. Come first, there's meat. And the meat might be perhaps adjacent to something's good. It's being used in a deceived way. I mean, we talked about this with St. Augustine and friendship, is that friendship is often what pulls us astray. Come with me, there'll be companionship as we commit this folly or sin together. Companionship doesn't sound so bad. These people have been kind to me at some point in my life. Sure, I'll join in this path at this moment. Sometimes seduction doesn't work that way, but oftentimes there's some sort of positive or positive adjacent good that gets us into that path. It pulls us astray. It brings us to there. I have fulfilled my vows and offered a sacrifice, so you should come here. What happens in the next section, looking backwards, makes more sense. With pervasive, with persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at, all at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose. To an arrow pierced his liver like a blood darting into his hair, little knowing it cost him his life. The personified composite of this, this woman, which is not really just about a woman, as I've said, it's about so much more, is actually consuming him. It's the point about sinfulness is we begin thinking we're eating it, and before we know it, it's eating us. The today I have fulfilled my vows is, is ambiguous enough in Hebrew to read almost today I'm filling my vows with a sacrifice and little do you know it's you. In his waywardness he's become the one who's walking into death willingly as the sacrifice in his own way to destruction. And what the, she adorns the bed with uh, in the ancient world both connotates sexuality but also our funeral spices. Again, thinking about your own path into disrepair, 
the times where you've given in. Sometimes we miss the signs that there are skulls surrounding the entryway to the door. There are acts of depression along the way. There are stories and narratives of the human sacrifice that has been often to fulfill that goal. If this young man, uncommitted as he is, had been thinking, he would hear sexuality, but also a bed for death. That, that, that sacrifice here might be himself. You are the sacrifice. And, and one of the things that he is unable to say is no, which, which going back in this is no is actually sort of the human word for freedom. Animals are governed by their senses. They go where they want. They say yes and do this, right? Uh, humans actually have the access to say, I'm not going to eat all of the slain caribou and make myself sick. I can save it for tomorrow. I can move to someplace else. Um, I don't have to be consumed by my desire. So mating season in the animal kingdom isn't like no. Um, it's pretty instinctual. What the young man has forgotten is that yes isn't the only path we walk. Nowhere does he say, perhaps this isn't a good idea. Perhaps I should think about this. No. No, I'm not going this way. No, I'm not doing that thing. And the negative, the no, isn't received as positive as our way to freedom. We think our way to freedom is just yes, yes, yes. The bed is with spices that we think are for sex, but they're for our own funerals. So the end of the passage, now my son, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let... Do not let your heart turn to her ways or your path stray into her past. Many are her victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. If we disregard the paths that we have to walk, we walk paths that lead to death. And the Hebrew word here is, is sheol, which isn't just um, you die. It's the path to the underworld, to the chambers and the openings of that place where all the dead bodies are. It's literally the highway to hell in some ways. Through being uncommitted and walking in the ways, we walk as our own sacrifices. The novel Crime and Punishment begins um, with a young man who feels lots of resentment. And that resentment brings him into murder. Because he thinks he's so right about it. This is the, we talked about politics, we talked about the lust that naturally overruns his society, it seems like. We also seem like we're in an age of resentment as well. And it's not just resentment of, of the wealthy or people who have more. It, it seems like a metaphysical resentment. I've used the phrase um, from Carl, Carl Jung before that people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Um, again, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. That, that we are captured by things beyond us. So in the New Testament, these ideas would be called principalities and powers that we find ourselves captive to things way beyond our control. Resentment can cause us to walk these paths to the chambers of death as well. 
and our uncommittedness. And even in, in this, the beginner, the man who commits the murder at the beginning of the book, Crime and Punishment, um, is convinced he is so right. Is convinced he has deduced the way, and that in some ways this will be a just murder because it benefits him. We see this in our own world as well. So to end, uh, I want to do two things and then uh, share the back on the bulletin. So the, the quote on the back of the bulletin, the fear of the Lord practice is one of the things that we've been trying to talk about. And for day, the fear of the Lord practices that came from the beginning, how do I avoid this path? Is my son, keep my words and store up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments, commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your figures. Write them on the tablet of the, your heart. Um, this is the ways in which we talked about in, again, Deuteronomy. It says, sit with your children and, and talk these things over. This is how wisdom and the Torah is received. This is how faithful practice is received in Deuteronomy 6. And, and the phrase there is impress them on your children, which is, um, you know, a lot of, well, I could say just I've sat with parents a lot who would say, well, I don't want to press anything on them. Um, scripture would say, no, impress them on your children. That's how these things are relieved uh, or, or passed on. Um, but, but these ideas that, that you trust these commands and guard my teachings as the apple of your eye, which is to say that they become the path of illumination for you. It's the pupil of your eye. It's the thing that enables you to see. Is to keep the commandments in that spot. Is to practice the fear of the Lord to keep you on the correct path. Bind them on your fingers. Uh, commentary language, it, it has to do with memorization, actually, is what they're saying. It's not just this binding them on your fingers, but being able to memorize them. Having them near to you. Being able to apply them as you walk the paths of light. You know, for instance, the young man, the uncommitted, uh, if, 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 he, if he had, as my mom said, you know, nothing good happens after 8 p.m., he'd be like, oh, it's 8. It's time to go home. Um, you know, there are ways in which wisdom, even simple wisdom such as that, don't walk into the, this part of town with no plan late at night, could have actually kept him at home. And again, I, I feel comical saying that, but sometimes it is so simple guarding our paths, having those words near to us. Write them on the tablet of your heart. We've talked about the heart a lot as not just um, a place of emotion in the ancient Near East, but actually the center of who you are. Today, it would almost be like write them on your brain. We think of the brain more as the center than as the heart. Um, but also on your imagination is another phrase. Write them on your imagination so that they become the ways in which you can move into the world. This brought me to what Brian read to us uh, from the book of Ezekiel, which is about that, that we need circumcised hearts. Writing them is one thing, but asking God, and this is what happens in the book of Ezekiel at this portion, is to say that you couldn't do it on your own, and so I'm going to put a new spirit and a new heart within you. And so as we read the book of Proverbs as sort of this um, cautionary tale, it's a cautionary tale that points us to the New Testament need of something outside of ourselves. As I've said before in the words from Romans, that who will save us from this body of death? Jesus Christ. The book of Proverbs alone is perhaps not enough to save us. 
but we need a God outside of ourselves to do so as well. This is, uh, say to wisdom, you are my sister, is a romantic term. Um, relative, I have, no, this is the NIV, I should have looked it up because that's not exactly what it should say. But it's to say, fall in love properly with wisdom is the correct path. Don't fall in love with folly, fall in love with wisdom. So to close, I, don't, I like poetry, I admire poetry. Uh, Kim uh, will acknowledge I don't understand poetry as well as I should either. Uh, so I rarely teach in poetry, and I'm often aware that poetry doesn't speak to everybody, which is part of the challenge of it. So the poem on the back of the bulletin is from uh, George Herbert, and it, it's, I think it's titled Love Three, although most people know it's by its first line, Love Bade Me Welcome. And the love personified in George Herbert's poem, as we'll read it, is Jesus Christ. It is that love that brings him welcome. Um, I want to end with this, so I just want to jump forward to one weird reference at the end. In my uh, genius ways of understanding the New Testament, I thought the meat was just a reference to communion, but actually the authorized version of the King James, which is not the Bible we use here, uh, has Luke 27 saying, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord... When he cometh shall find watching, verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them sit down to meet, and he will come forth and serve them. Uh, so the reference to meet at the end, I always thought was a reference to communion, but it's actually a reference to a Bible translation that has meat in there. Most of ours don't. Um, yeah, I'll let it speak for itself. If you overexplain these things, they, they, don't, they lose their power. Love bade me welcome. Yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioned me if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, and my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smilingly did reply, Whose eye, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Let us pray. God, we have been warned and told of two paths before us. The path to the love of your son who invites us in to sit and to serve us to forgive and to reconcile with us, to be near to us, as opposed to the path of folly and wisdom who offers meat, but it is our meat, it is ourselves, and we become the sacrifice. Lord, through the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, may we hear that you are the one who invites us in. It is the love of Christ that bids us welcome. It is the love of Christ that rescues us from our self-created hells. It is the love of Christ that frees us from addiction. 
It is through the love of Christ that we are more than conquerors, and nothing can separate us from God. Correct in us the paths we walk, God. Let us hear your instruction to have them be the apple of our eye, the illumination, to have them uh, on our fingers as if memorized so that we are ready for that time, that we are not uncommitted in the ways that we wander the earth, but we are committed to you. And may they be bound on our heart. May we receive the gifts of the new spirit and the new heart you place within us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.